Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career breaking down silos by engaging with innovators across industries. And now I'm sharing those conversations with you. Meet the forward-thinking leaders challenging the status quo and unleashing creative new ways of improving financial health by seeing their customers, employees, and communities in 3D. Systemic racism has contributed to economic inequality in this country, whether it's levels of household wealth, home ownership rates, or levels of investment in minority communities. How do we then move towards economic justice for all? From his term as the 59th mayor of New Orleans to his nearly two decades leading the National Urban League, my guest today, Mark Morial, has been one of the country's most influential civil rights advocates. In this moment of extreme partisanship and divisiveness, his lifelong focus on coalition building and on bringing people together is more important than ever. Mark, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Hey, Jennifer, congratulations on the show, on the podcast, and thanks for your continuing uh, friendship. I appreciate that. Um, I want to dive right in. Um, I'd love for you to share with our listeners some perspective on the history and mission of the National Urban League, because the organization's been around for a long time, and there are numerous civil rights organizations out there. Um, but the Urban League has always been really focused on the economic side of the equation, the work that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King yeah. really left unfinished when he was cut down before his time. Um, and that just feels super relevant right now, given the moment we're in. So mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the focus on economic justice and self-reliance and why that's so important at this moment in history. So appreciate the question. And let me just take you back to 1910. And as we say, we're a 111 years young Mm -hmm. historic civil rights and urban advocacy organization. So in the early 20th century, you had these incredible movements of people taking place. One movement you had was immigration, primarily from uh, parts of Western Europe and parts of Eastern Europe. Uh, Ireland and Italy and Western European countries uh, fleeing uh, political repression, economic uh, violence, uh, all forms of great difficulties coming to the shores of the United States looking for opportunity. Then you had this internal movement of people called the Great Migration. It was a movement of African-Americans from from the rural South, uh, from the agricultural economy of the South moving away from uh, the rise of segregation and Jim Crow, moving away from uh, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and, and, and domestic, domestic terrorism against black people, moving away from uh, a, uh, a, a rural economy to the promise of the industrial north, the industrial cities, the Chicago's, the Detroit's, the New York's, the Boston's, the Baltimore's, and I could go on. It was in New York that two people teamed up. Uh, George Edmund Haynes, a disciple of W.B. Du Bois, a newly minted social worker from Columbia University, happened to be African-American, and Ruth Standish Baldwin, a suffragist leader, uh, a white woman, and uh, 
in the literature of the times an heiress. And they got together and they created from three fledgling organizations, the National Urban League. And the purpose was to provide support uh, and a voice to newly arriving migrants in New York City. We grew from there to Detroit and Boston and many cities beyond because the challenges of migrants, black migrants in New York City was the problem that black migrants faced in every community uh, mm -hmm. along the North. And our focus was economic opportunity, jobs, quality housing, educational opportunities for children. Uh, and that was our central focus. In the 1960s, Whitney Young, who joined us in 1961, uh, joined us from Atlanta, where he had been a friend and ally of Martin Luther King during his days as dean of the School of Social Work at uh, Atlanta University. Uh, he made the National Urban League a full partner in the Emerging Civil Rights Coalition, which included the NAACP and Dr. King and uh, Dorothy Height and uh, John Lewis and A. Philip Randolph, the great labor leader, and Roy Wilkins and a number of others who formed that core of what was known as the Big Six. Uh, and since that point, Whitney Young was transformative. He sharpened our focus on economic issues by uh, creating a skill set and a competency within the organization to affect economic policy, workforce development, to corporate diversity in EEO policy, education, minority business, housing and community development. And that fundamental model is what we've embraced in the transformation I've had the privilege to lead over the last 15 years, which is to reclaim our role as, uh, as one of the leading voices on economic uh, issues, economic justice, economic empowerment, economic parity as an important element of, uh, of civil rights. Now, I'll say this, you said it and Jennifer, you're so right. The unfinished business is economics. The data shows that the economic if you will, disparities that exist in this nation are greater than the health disparities, greater than the education disparities, even deeper than the criminal justice system disparities which exist. And, and from the Urban League's point of view, we believe that it is the underlying driver of continued poverty, racism, and disparity. So confronting it, dealing with it, and addressing it is so significant and important for a broader set of issues. And that's what leads us to where we work today in, in these areas and policy and programs and thought leadership. Yeah, you are really built for this moment in many ways. We're built for crisis and we respond in crisis. Uh, our workforce development programs expand, our home buyer uh, education and housing counseling programs expand. Uh, we're involved in relief efforts related to COVID, whether it's providing food. But no, we, we're built for crises. We're built for challenge. We're built for change. If the National Urban League did not exist in America, someone would be trying to invent us. Mm. So I know I'm always going to get a history lesson when I talk to you, which is one of the <laughs> reasons why I love talking to you. And, you know, the other thing that I find so interesting is that there are lots of things I'm sure you're hoping the new Biden administration is going to tackle. But one of the things that you have been steadfast in your support for um, is the Marshall Plan for America's Cities, uh, mm -hmm. this signature 
concept that the Urban League has been uh, advocating for now for many, many, many years, um, sort of tailored off of the Marshall Plan after World War II. Um, and it was first proposed, I think, by Whitney Young, as you mentioned, yes, back in the yeah. mid-60s. Um, and you're still carrying forward that work today. So tell us a little bit more about what yeah. this Main Street Marshall Plan looks like. And in particular, why do you think it's important that we unite behind policies that drive economic recovery, not only for Black people, but for urban communities and all low-income Americans? Well, you remember the Marshall Plan, which was a plan put together by the United States to help rebuild Europe after the devastation of World War II. And the premise was that Europe was a friend and a partner of the United States, and that uh, for them to be economically strong would benefit the United States. So a broad commitment was made, and uh, it had a dramatic impact uh, on post-World War II Europe and the rebuilding of the infrastructure uh, and, and the business and job-creating uh, engines of Western Europe. Uh, today, and you mentioned Whitney Young, he came out with his domestic Marshall Plan in the 60s. We've uh, renewed it. It's a bit of a domestic Marshall Plan 3.0 uh, and called it the mainstream Marshall Plan, really in response to the hyper-focus of the post-08-09 recession on rebuilding simply the banking institutions of America, which they needed to be rebuilt, but the premise was probably inaccurate. Mm -hmm. That if you rebuilt that infrastructure alone, that it would lift all boats in the economy. Our point of view is, is that America's cities, big and small, have been underinvested in in the last 20 years. The housing stock's been underinvested in. The physical infrastructure has been underinvested under in. The school infrastructure has been underinvested in. And now we see the effects mm -hmm. in a very stark way. So the Main Street Marshall Plan says invest in these communities and there will be a huge rate of return, not only for these communities, but for American society because cities are the economic drivers of the American economy. And so we propose a, a plan of investment, $2 trillion on physical infrastructure, roads, bridges, mm -hmm. rail systems, airports, water systems, housing, broadband, community facilities, $2 trillion on human infrastructure, workforce development, uh, education, human capital needs that we have as a nation. So it is a, it is a thought process to do a big investment. The view being that it's gonna create a significant rate of return. And we've been championing this and we continue to champion it with a requirement and a, and a, and a call for there to be a focus on minority business participation and involvement, uh, making sure that there's workforce development opportunities for communities of color, for returning citizens, uh, for women uh, in, in the job creation that would result. Uh, and uh, we are working now to uh, press those issues with the Biden team, the National Economic Council, the DPC, uh, new Secretary Buttigieg, who uh, will play a large role in, 
in, in designing the infrastructure plan, as well as across the board with members of Congress. You know a lot about infrastructure because, as you mentioned, you were the mayor of New Orleans. Uh, when you invest in infrastructure, the value of housing goes up. Wealth is created when you invest in infrastructure. Uh, real estate tax uh, taxes tend to increase. Uh, it has a profound impact. You know, I sort of piloted this approach when I was mayor of New Orleans. One of the first things I did when I came into office is to put together piece by piece a $1 billion infrastructure program. And I learned when I took office is that the city had borrowing capacity at uh, very reasonable interest rates significantly higher than they had borrowed. And that several of the external agencies, the airport and the transit authority, had those two, the school district too. So we assembled uh, a number of pieces together and said, let us, as a, as a city government, invest in rebuilding the physical city. Let's invest in expanding the port. We built an arena. We upgraded the airport. We built streets, parks, pools, libraries, because it is what, it is the tool I had in my hand. I yeah. couldn't affect GDP and interest rates, but I could direct local capacity into public infrastructure. Well, it worked. It had a dramatic impact. And I think that's the theory I want people to understand about, about infrastructure investment. These are permanent investments. These are permanent. We still have bridges and schools and parks that were built by FDR's New Deal. Right. In cities, still standing, still working, nearly 100 years later. Interestingly enough, you wrote a book that was published um, just last year called The Gumbo Coalition. Um, and it shares leadership lessons from your time as an attorney and serving as mayor. Uh, I've read some of it. I haven't yet finished it. I love it. it you exude, you know, you sort of ooze through the pages. Um, you know, what I want to talk a little bit about is you talk about bringing together diverse perspectives to make progress in a house divided. Um, I personally love that idea because really one of the main focus of this podcast is bringing people together from across sectors to understand that actually everything is interconnected and that we've got to work together uh, if we're going to solve some of society's biggest problems. Uh, and in a very profound way, President Biden is facing this very challenge in uniting a very divided country. So Tell us what the Gumbo Coalition means. Tell you us know, the story of where that came from. And then tell us a little bit about your approach to networking, coalition building, um, because it's something that um, you will long be remembered for. You know, sometimes it's easier to bring together people than it is to bring together politicians. And, you know, when we look at our di the divided politics, so much of the focus is on Washington, D.C. And I think the system in Washington is built for division. It's a uh, system that uh, power is conferred by virtue of which party simply has the most seats, right? And that's a system that exists. At the local level, in many places, you don't have a system like that. Uh, you have more, you have factions and you have divisions, but sometimes there's a, a different type of process you don't have at the local level as many, except in probably the very largest of cities, as big a professional class of influencers 
you know, lobbyists and trade groups and interest groups. You have a lot more average people who are at the table in conversations and discussions. My, my, my thing thinking now is, hey, we have to unite people. We have to unite people maybe outside of the public policy realm to push on people uh, inside of the policy realm. So it's striking to me that the COVID bill that Joe Biden's put together would generate so much partisan opposition. Because I just look at the polls and I see these 70% approval ratings in the polls. So that, to me, represents a pretty broad consensus. Because in American politics and amongst the population, you, know, you do have what I call a net caucus. I no, no, hell, no to everything. It's sometimes 20, 25%. They're not for nothing. But I think that uh, Biden has sounded the right, the right tone, which is, I'm going to try to find consensus, but I will not be bogged down. I will try to find consensus, but I'm not going to allow people to, to, to pretend to bargain when they really aren't bargaining. And I think it's a challenge. Uh, you know, I took the approach, you know, in New Orleans that uh, I pulled a lot of people to the table and uh, to find big solutions on housing, on infrastructure, and even on public safety, which is, was a divisive issue. But part of it meant me pushing and shoving people to get give and take a little, you know, and sometimes people have to absorb things they didn't necessarily want. Uh, it's a local situation. I had a strong political hand at the time that had a lot to do with it, but it was sort of, uh, you know, it was predicated on we need to do things big. We cannot do things big unless we are together. We have to find win-wins. Uh, we have to identify uh, those things that we can agree on and not get bogged down on what we disagree on. And part of it, I think, was also there was a tremendous amount of what I call good faith leadership, business community, faith community, uh, a new generation of elected officials that were had been elected mainly in the 90s, who at the time in New Orleans were a little bit younger, who wanted to make a difference, and they hadn't been around so long to be jaded. Uh, and, and I wonder if in America today, this is about building a coalition, understanding that unity is not unanimity. And what you want to do is build as broad a coalition amongst the people as possible and bring that to bear on the elected. So I think that the system in American politics is such that uh, we have almost evolved to a parliamentary style system mm. where you win, you govern. If you don't win, you play loyal opposition. That's kind of a parliamentary system. We have never seen ourselves as a parliamentary system. Uh, the founding fathers never envisioned political parties. Uh, they didn't envision that people would divide themselves. But look, political parties emerged in the first term of George Washington when uh, uh, Jefferson and uh, Madison uh, exited uh, the Washington cabinet uh, over disagreements, over alliances with France and debt payments and a whole host of things. But they didn't envision it. So uh, we have evolved to where we are today. We have to live with what we are today. But I like to say, to let's build a coalition of people as broad as we can and recognize somehow that maybe the politics is sometimes a little out of touch with what the people want. People want a COVID relief bill. I think they want it to be large. I think they want infrastructure. I think they want minimum wage. Uh, I think they'll, you know, live with 
some variations in between. I don't think they want to they want to dumb down uh, the whole situation to make it so little that politicians cheer and people suffer. So you come by this coalition building, this gumbo style coalition building, if you will, honestly. Um, you are New Orleans through and through. Your late father mm-hmm. led the New Orleans branch of the NAACP before becoming the city's first black mayor before you. Your mother, huge civil rights advocate, producer of a documentary, an author. Um, you know, what What do they say about crossing the ditch? You talk about in the book, crossing the invisible ditches that segregate people. I talk about silo busting. You talk about ditches, which I love. You know, what have you learned from your upbringing? How do you cross the ditch? My parents were very determined, my brothers and sisters and I. They they were on the front lines of ending segregation, and they hadn't gone to all segregated schools. And they wanted us to go to integrated schools. So they pushed us into environments that sometimes it was tough. And sometimes it was hazing and, 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 and issues and challenges and name calling. They kind of pushed us into that. So essentially, you end up growing up in multiple worlds. Mm. And the 1960s and the 1970s. And so you, you understand uh, that which divides, but you also understand sometimes that which can unite. And I think some of it is more instinctive. I sort of believe in uh, always trying to have some discourse and dialogue. Uh, Always understanding, look, if we talk and we don't come to some consensus, we'll fight. But I never want to, and I thought about this in local politics, and I asked myself, would this work more in a national perspective? Because I'm principled and I'm a strong advocate and I believe what I believe. Uh, but, uh, But also in action, uh, is the is is the is the enemy of progress, and while I don't necessarily, there are times when incrementalism is all you have. There's time when boldness is what you can achieve. I think we're in a time of boldness. Mm-hmm. I think we were in a time before of incrementalism, because I think that the problems are so deep. I think the challenges are so severe. Who would have imagined just a year ago? that we would be where we are a year later with COVID, uh, the economic downturn, the challenges around race. Who would have imagined? In fact, if if you and I had had this podcast and I predicted it and said, you know, we're going to have the worst health crisis, we're going to have this, (laughs) you'd say, man, that guy, that guy's, that guy's been been reading something. He's been doing something. He's, his head is off the, is off, off his, off the swivel, right? Because we've lived in a, century, the 21st century of the unexpected, 9-11, great wars, great weather events. Uh, We elected an African-American president. Then we elected a president who was recognized by the public as a racist, Mm -hmm. right? One behind each other. Not an accident. Not an accident. Then, (laughs) boom, we're into this situation where we have covid and it comes out of the blue, and, and, and then we get into debate whether it's real or not. And you're thinking, wow, this is... So these have been challenging times for us. And I think those of us who work where we work, uh, we have to work together. We have to push. We have to shove. Uh, but we, ha- we can't be tricked. I was 
taken by January 6th. Uh, when I first turned on television for about a split millisecond, I said, this looks like a movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was stunned by it because it's not for all of the tension and challenges we've had as a nation. We've never seen anything like that in our life. And I think many of us, it's easy for people to think that that was not possible in the United States of America. And I said, you know, I, I can see how these despots emerge, these totalitarian regimes emerge, how it's devoid of any value. It's all about raw power. And uh, so we're at a point now where we really have to double down on the protection of democracy, the right to vote, the right to express ourselves, a loyalty to the truth, uh, you know, some loyalty to transparency, uh, the value of equity, justice, you know, and, and fairness. We, 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 we have to embrace these values because some of what we have seen is an actual threat to it in the quest of power. Right. And we're never going to get the kind of economic justice that's needed without that. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Jennifer, thank everywhere. you for having me out. Let's do it again. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. I'm Jennifer Tesher, and I'd love to hear your ideas for future guests and your reactions to the show. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jen Tesher. If you liked this episode, please review the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the work and research we do, please visit emerge.finhealthnetwork.org. See you next time.